please open your Bibles to Mark 6. Last week, we started a four-part series through the Gospel of Mark. And we're continuing that series this week titled, Beholding the Glory of Christ. Professor Michael Wilkins writes an article titled, Unique Discipleship to a Unique Master. And in it, he reminds us that an important issue for understanding discipleship in Mark's gospel is to recognize that the center stage always belongs to Jesus. And then he goes on to write that discipleship to him must be understood in light of his unique person and mission. So we are all here, if we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, we're called to follow him. We're called to be disciples of Jesus. And I think Professor Michael Wilkins is right that in order to understand what discipleship is, we have to first understand the person and the mission of Jesus Christ. So my goal for us as we're walking through this gospel is to first see what it's telling us about Jesus. To set our gaze upon him. And today we will look at two of the most famous stories of Jesus. Or two of some of the most. The feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. You may have heard those before. You may be unfamiliar with them altogether. Now, did you know that Mark actually connects these two stories together? In Mark 6, 52, 51 and 52, look there if you have your Bibles open. After the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, Mark records that the disciples were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. The loaves? That's the story right before. That's the feeding of the 5,000. How does that help the disciples understand what's happening when Jesus is walking on the water? Now, what's also interesting about the Gospel of Mark is this isn't the last time that Mark points to the feeding of the 5,000. In Mark chapter 8, verses 17 through 21, he records a conversation between the disciples and Jesus about them not having bread. And Jesus asked the disciples, Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? Now, when we are reading the Gospels and we see repeated references to stories like this, it should cause us to stop, to slow down, and to see that there must be something important for us to understand. That's why it's referenced. That's why it's repeated. It's because we need to grasp what's happening here in order to see what Mark is trying to tell us about Jesus. And in 652, we see that Mark is showing that the feeding of the 5,000 helps us to know and believe what Jesus walking on the water is teaching us. So this morning, what we'll do together 
is we're going to look at these two stories together to get the full picture Mark is painting of Jesus. Now, before we do that, there's a key aspect of studying the Gospels, which I believe is helpful to make note of. And that is this. Proper understanding of the Gospels is rooted in knowing the Old Testament. Let me say that again. Proper understanding of the Gospels is rooted in knowing the Old Testament. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you're new to the Bible, the Bible is split up into two major sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've titled them like this because the Old Testament is the testimony of God before Jesus Christ was born. And the New Testament is the testimony of God after Jesus Christ is born. And in order to understand the Gospels rightly, we need to know the Old Testament because the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, are constantly pointing back to the Old Testament. And they do this in two ways. The first is through quotes, and that's pretty clear. Usually you see it in your Bible um, in brackets or something along those lines. And in Mark, if you look back to the first chapter, you'll see that he begins by quoting several Old Testament prophecies. So he's connecting the Old Testament with the new there. Now the second way, though, that the gospel writers point back to the Old Testament is less obvious. And it's through what we, what theologians or scholars or pastors call illusions. G.K. Beale defines an illusion like this. He says, an illusion is an expression consciously intended by the author to be dependent on an Old Testament passage. So an illusion in the New Testament is a reference to the Old Testament that we need to know in order to understand what the New Testament passage is teaching us. But it's not always in quotes. Oftentimes it's in symbolism, metaphors, something that is like something of the Old Testament. And so we have to pay close attention when we're reading. And can I just say that's a reason to read your Old Testament? I know, I know some of it can be a little a little dry when you get to Leviticus and you're reading about all the laws or numbers and about all the groupings of the people of Israel. But the more you know the Old Testament, the more when you start to read the New Testament, you go, oh, that's what they're saying. So if I can just encourage you to read the Old Testament. Now, the reason that I mention all this is not just to give you a bunch of fun things and and facts and stuff, but because our two stories this morning are filled with allusions to the Old Testament. And in order to understand what Mark is trying to relay to us, we need to know what they're saying and what they're referencing in the Old Testament. So let's look at the stories together. And we're going to start with Mark chapter 6, verses thirty. Through 44, the feeding of the 5,000. Here, we're going to see that Mark reveals Jesus as the compassionate God of the Exodus. Verse 30, chapter 6. 
the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he, being Jesus, saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Sometimes I think you can just read the story and get everything you need to out of it. What an amazing story. Notice how this story begins. Mark tells us that this takes place upon the disciples' return to Jesus. This points us back to the beginning of Mark chapter 6 in verses 7 through 13, where Jesus has sent out the disciples having them take nothing with them, giving them authority over demons and the power to heal and telling them to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So he sends the disciples out. They cast out demons, they perform miracles, and they come back to Jesus. And notice what Mark records. The first thing is that they report to Jesus what they had done and taught. Now, my personal opinion is that the exact way the authors put the words together in order are vitally important. So I think that Mark is intentional to report that they first told Jesus what they had done. You see, they're most excited about the miracles and the healings. And it would appear that they still don't understand the main purpose of Jesus. And we're going to see that more clearly as we get to chapter 8 next week. The second thing that Mark tells us is that Jesus tells the disciples to go away to a desolate place in order to rest because many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. 
So we can picture the scene that's taking place. The disciples come back and they're excited and they're reporting everything to Jesus. All that they had done, the demons they had cast out, the people they had healed. Jesus, you wouldn't believe what we did in your name. And then they can't even find time to eat because people are continuing to come and come for more healings, more miracles. This is Capernaum all over again. Only this time, the people aren't coming just for Jesus. They're coming for the disciples as well. So they all climb into a boat to go away to what Mark says is a desolate place. Now, did you notice that Mark says the type of this place two times in the first three verses? And actually, he records it a third time in verse 35 where the disciples tell Jesus, this is a desolate place. This repetition triggers in our minds there's something going on here. What do I need to know? Why, why are you continuing to say this is a desolate place? This is like saying, I'm going to Grace Church at the Westin, and I'll be at the Westin tomorrow. And when you're there, we'll meet together at the Westin. You wouldn't do that naturally in a conversation. So Mark is wanting us to see something with this reference. And unfortunately, we got to learn a little bit about Greek, the original language that it was written in. Because the word here means desert or wilderness. And with this word, Mark begins one of his allusions to the Old Testament. Because he starts to connect the reader's mind to Israel and the wilderness during the Exodus. Then we read that the disciples are heading there on the boat... And crowds recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, the Sea of Galilee was probably about four miles wide and there were towns surrounding it. So they see the disciples on the boat. They recognize all of them and they're running to them. And what we read next is crucial. Verse 34, when he, being Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Jesus is not stressed. He's not annoyed that these crowds are here, that his disciples didn't get away for rest. He's not upset when he sees them. He has compassion on them. Compassion because he sees that they have no one to lead them like sheep need a shepherd to lead them. So he begins to teach them about the kingdom of God and he teaches them for hours. You can imagine the emotions, the thoughts of the disciples during this time. They hadn't even gotten a chance to eat before they got into the boat. And they're going away to the wilderness to get away from people. And when they arrive on the shore, the shore is littered with people, all wanting. And then Jesus teaches them until it grows dark. Is your tummy rumbling yet? And so everyone else is there. And because they ran from the towns on foot, they all have nothing to eat. That's the problem of this story that we're introduced to. There's no food for the people 
So then we see that the disciples think they're clever, and they come to Jesus with a solution to the problem. Jesus, all these people have been listening to you all day long, and we are in the wilderness with no food. Send them away so they can go buy something to eat. Stop teaching them, Jesus. Send them away. I can guarantee you they were not prepared for his response. Did you see what he said to them? Verse 35. He says, you give them something to eat. Now let's feel the weight of this statement. In the original language, it's a command that demands immediate action. You give them something to eat. And you can empathize with the response of the disciples, can't you? Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? A 200 denarii would have been about eight months wages for a common worker. Jesus, come on. We just came back after you sent us out with nothing. And you want us to go buy food for all these people? There's no way that the disciples were carrying around enough pocket change to feed all these people. It would have been impossible to provide them with the food that they needed. Exactly. That is exactly what Jesus wants. And so he sends them out. He says, go to the crowd and see how many loaves the people have. So you can picture it. The disciples are walking around. How many loaves do you have? 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 They come back to Jesus. Five loaves and two fish. Jesus, we're going to have to go buy some food or send them away. The stage is set. There is no way you can feed this crowd with that little amount of food. And this brings us perfectly then to the real resolution of this problem. Notice the wording of the next two verses. Jesus says, or Mark records, Then he, Jesus, commands them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Now take a moment to see the vivid and specific description by Mark. They sat down on green grass in groups by hundreds and by fifties. If you've read your Old Testament, this is starting to trigger something in your mind because this is another illusion Mark is making. The arrangement here resembles the Mosaic camps of Israel in Exodus 18, 21. In fact, no, we don't have time. <laughs> Look it up on your own. Exodus 18, 21, read it. It's almost identical. And incidentally, this also makes it very easy for them to count the people. So we know that the number recorded at the end is accurate. So here we are reading Mark chapter 6, 
And we see that Mark has now made several specific allusions to the Exodus. And he won't stop there. Jesus takes the bread, and according to the Jewish custom, he gives a blessing, which would have been in response to the Exodus. He would have said something like this, Praise unto thee, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread come forth from the earth. Then the disciples began to hand the bread out. Now, I just want you to imagine this scene together with me. The Gospels don't record exactly how the bread and the fish were multiplied, but the tense of the words here suggest that the bread was multiplied in Jesus' hands as he gave it to the disciples. So the disciples received some bread from Jesus, the first bit of bread. You turn around, you see the crowds. Okay, they walk up, here's your bread. Come back to Jesus, get some more bread. Walk to the next group, give them bread back forth, back and forth. Imagine their thoughts as they're coming back from each group. They have to be wondering, how in the world is this going to feed everybody? We know they don't have full faith yet. Mark has made that clear. Yet each time they come back empty-handed, there's always more to hand out. First the bread, and then the fish. Then we see the story reach an unimaginable ending. Remember, these were five loaves and two fish. Look at verses 42 through 44 again. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Did you hear that? Not only did they feed the crowd, the crowd was satisfied. And they had leftovers. Then we see that the crowd consisted of 5,000 men. Now, it's customary in this time to count by men. This means that there were more than 5,000 people there if you counted women and children. Just imagine the excitement in the air. Imagine the awe on the disciples' faces as they pick up 12 baskets full of leftovers. Everyone satisfied completely. This is another allusion to the Old Testament and to the Exodus where God provided quail in the evening every night for Israel and in the morning they woke up and manna was on the ground. This is an astonishing miracle and it is a picture of God's provision during the Exodus. However, this time Jesus is God's presence replacing the pillar and the cloud. And the bread is God's provision, replacing the manna. Mark is showing us that Jesus Christ is the compassionate God of the Exodus. He is Yahweh over Israel. 
And there's another beautiful illusion in this passage that I want to just mention briefly. And it is to Psalm 23, verses 1 through 2. Tell me if you hear it when I read these verses. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Mark is telling us something so important about Jesus. Let it sink in. And then, look at our next story. In Mark 6, verses 45 through 52. Which makes it clear what he's telling us by revealing that Jesus is the great I am walking among us. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. To Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea and they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We can see immediately that this story is connected. Pun fully intended. That just landed not good. Oh well. <laughs> Verse 45. Jesus immediately sends the disciples away and he dismisses the crowd. And then when he dismisses the crowd, he goes up on the mountain to pray. And what's interesting about Mark's gospel is that this is the second time, only the second time that Mark mentions that Jesus got away to pray. In fact, Mark only mentions that Jesus gets away to pray three times in his gospel. Certainly, he got away to pray more than three times. Oh, the other gospels actually record it more. The first time was in our story last week after the healings in Capernaum. The second time is here, and the third time will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, as we look at these three prayers, we see that each time, Jesus is wrestling with a temptation to detour from the mission he came for. You see, in Capernaum, he could have stayed there and built a large following. But he prays and he leaves. Here he sends the disciples away and dismisses the crowd because they are ready to start a rebellion and make Jesus king by force. We know this because of John 6.15 where in his gospel he says that they were ready to take Jesus by force and make him a king. So Jesus gets away to pray. You see, that's not why he came. And the final time is when he cries out to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Father, all things are possible for you. If possible, remove this cup from me. But what does he say at the end of his prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. See, each time Jesus is tempted to detour from the task at hand, he gets away to be strengthened through prayer. Church, this is how we fight temptation. We don't just try to distract ourselves. We don't just try to power through it. We pray. We lean on the Father's help. We ask for the Spirit to give us strength to overcome temptation. I love that picture. Now let's continue in our story as we come to the problem of this section. Jesus is up on the mountain praying and the disciples are in a boat out on the sea. And Mark tells us that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And Jesus sees them doing this. Consider this moment. Jesus is on the mountain praying, wrestling with the temptation And he takes time to notice the disciples on the sea struggling as they're rowing against the wind. What a compassionate God. And notice what Mark records next because it's important for us to see this as it shows us something very specific about Jesus. Verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, which is between about 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Stop there. That doesn't sound right, does it? We should stop there and go, there's got to be something wrong. What is happening here? Why is it phrased that he meant to pass by them? Of course Jesus didn't mean to pass by them. He left the mountain to come help them. So what's going on here? Mark is making another strong and undeniable allusion to the Old Testament to show us the secret of Jesus' person. I believe he wants us to see this as what's called a theophany which is a visible manifestation of God to man. This is an allusion to when Yahweh passed by Moses in Exodus 33, 18 through 22. Listen to this story with me. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
you hear it? This is mentioned again in 1 Kings 19.11 when God passed by Elijah. And then again in Job 9, 8, and 11, where Job says this of God, who alone trampled the waves of the sea? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. This is a beautiful and awesome, undeniable reference to the glory of God. And if that's not enough for Mark to show us that Jesus is Yahweh walking among men, Mark records that when the disciples failed to recognize Jesus' glory, and they're terrified because they think he is a ghost, Jesus immediately comforts them by saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The Greek text literally reads, Take heart, ego ami which is the Greek equivalent of I am. Take heart, I am. This is the translation of Yahweh in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Bible at that time. It's the name of God. When the disciples are straining against the wind and making headway painfully, the great I am walks on the water to comfort them with his presence. You see, the climax of this problem is when the disciples fear what they think is a ghost on the sea and the resolution is Jesus' proclamation. Take heart, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Then, just to make it even more clear, As soon as he steps in the boat, the wind ceases. No more struggling. No more painfully making headway. Only smooth sailing. The creator of the world stepped into the boat and creation obeyed. He didn't even have to speak this time. If you were in home group this last week, you saw the calming of the storm with words. But this time, he didn't even have to speak. However, notice what Mark records as he ends this story again. The end of verse 52. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Our stories this morning bring us to two points of application. And the first is a sobering one. Mark leaves little doubt at who this Jesus of Nazareth is. The feeding of the 5,000 shows Jesus ruling as Yahweh. He is the compassionate God of Exodus. He creates bread out of nothing. He satisfies all who are hungry and come to him. He is the Lord of Psalm 23, the shepherd of the sheep who leads them to green pastures. And the miracle of Jesus walking on water is even more astounding than the first because it reveals to us that he indeed is the radiance 
of the glory of God, as Hebrews 1 tells us. He rules like Yahweh, trampling over the seas. And he makes a definitive claim of his divinity when he says, take heart, I am. You see, Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the great I am walking among us. The same God who passed by Moses and Elijah. The same God who led his people in the wilderness. The sobering part of this application is to consider whether we understand and believe or continue with hard hearts like the disciples did in this moment. Did you notice they had not yet believed? They will. Let's be sure of that. Peter is probably telling Mark, write this one down. They need to hear this one. Will you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh? Will you believe that God came into the world to make a way for people to be reconciled with him? Will you believe that God will return one day to judge the world? You see, Mark is setting the stage beautifully as he moves through his gospel. We're left with no choice but to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory, and we're only six chapters in. And then, as we'll see next week, understanding this about Jesus makes the last eight chapters of Mark utterly astounding. Because we're going to see what Jesus came to do with his power and his glory. We're going to see that he did not come to display his power and his glory by gaining followers and overthrowing Rome. But rather, as Mark 10.45 tells us, that Jesus came to show his power and his glory by serving man and giving his life as a ransom for many. This Jesus of Nazareth, the one who rules like Yahweh, the great I am, came to die. He came to die. Will you believe that this morning? Will you trust in him and all of his goodness and all of his glory? It will bring you more joy than anything this world has to offer. It will bring you the only peace that you can really have. He died on the cross. Will you believe? Now the second application is full of comfort for those of us who follow Jesus. Look at the compassion of Jesus Christ this morning. It is oozing from the pages of Scripture. Notice how he had compassion on the disciples. So he encouraged them to get away for rest. He will lead you to rest in green pastures. He will give you rest as you give your lives to his service. Notice how he had compassion for the crowd, so he taught them as a shepherd. He satisfied them with an abundance of bread. He will lead you and teach you as well. He will satisfy you 
as you come to him as the bread of life. Notice how he had compassion towards the disciples again. So as he sees them struggling against the wind, he goes and he meets them in their need. Church, your Savior, your Lord, your God sees your struggles. Every single one of them. He knows them, he sees them, and he will come and he will meet you in your need. Maybe you're struggling this morning with child raising. Maybe you're wondering if you're patient enough with your kids, if you're firm enough, if you're strong enough, if you're wise enough. Maybe you failed this week and you yelled at them and you need to go apologize to them. You're just struggling through it. He sees you in that need. And he will meet you and he will comfort you. Maybe someone in your life has recently been diagnosed with something very severe. And the road ahead looks impossible. Or maybe you're in the middle of it right now. And you feel like you're painfully rowing, barely making it by. Know that he sees you. And he will meet you in that need. Know that he is the great I am. Know that he is walking with you. Know that he is full of control and power over everything in your life. Maybe you're striving to serve him. And you feel like all you have is a few loaves and fish. What good is that? You see, that's a sweet place to be though. Can I, can I be honest? I feel that way every single week. God, I don't have enough to do this. Confess your dependence on him. Remain humble. Thank him for the cross. Offer what you have to him and watch him multiply it for your good and for his glory. Then, in every moment, look up. Look up. Set your gaze upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and say along with David at the end of Psalm 23, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Please stand together with me and let's we pray this word over us this morning. Father in heaven, we praise you that you sent your son into this world. We praise you that you humbled yourself. We praise Jesus. Jesus, we praise you that you humbled yourself. You took on flesh. You took on the limitations that we have in and of ourselves as humanity. Jesus, we praise you that you came to die. You came to die so that we might live. And we ask that you would 
be our vision. That you would be everything for us. That you would be the king of our heart. That we would see that riches, wealth, honor, nothing compares to knowing Jesus Christ. And God, for those who hear who do not know you, open their eyes. Open their eyes right now in this moment to see your son upon the cross. Open their eyes to see him risen to life. Open their eyes to behold the glory of Christ. Save them, God, save them so that they may walk in the newness of life. Give us grace as we seek to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray.